Welcome to the Zwift SBS podcast. Zwift is the app that turns indoor training into a game. With structured workouts, training plans and massive online group rides to make your training fun. Because fun is results. Fun is fast. Go to Zwift.com and start your free trial. Bonjour, 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 and uh, welcome to the Zwift Cycling Central podcast. Uh, before we start, uh, let me remind you that you can uh, download, stream, or subscribe to this podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash cyclingcentral, or log a ride with our friend at Zwift. Joining me, like in every episode, is, of course, Dave McKenzie. How are you, Micah? I'm pretty good. Uh, the sun is shining in lovely Melbourne. I tell you what, Christoph, I'm edging closer to my first winter at home in about 15 years. You know I'm not looking forward to it, but... So far, so good. No, no, no. There is still hope. We are going to do the Tour de France. We are still hoping that Tour de France is going to, is going to happen. So let's cross fingers. Okay. Uh, we have a cycling legend, cycling royalty with us today. It's Anna Mears. How are you, Anna? Bonjour. I'm good, Christophe and Maka. Great to see you. You've uh, come to us uh, in this podcast today because you've written a great book. So I must admit, the book is on my uh, bedside table. So I, <laughs> I read it a good part of the weekend, so, but not really ready for, for this interview. I should have brought the book. Great read. It's simply called Now. Uh, how long have you been thinking about writing this book? Well, thank you. I'm glad that you're enjoying the read. Um, I guess the book, uh, I was approached by many um, authors and public publishers after Rio to put a book together, but I just wasn't in a great space to continue to put myself, you know, being so honest and open in that capacity. And I turned down every offer. And um, I joined the speaking circuit, circuit with the ICMI Speaking Bureau. And um, the more I did that, the more people kept asking me, you know, do you have a book with this information in it, with these stories, with these experiences? And I, I simply said no. Um, and I, I got hammered by him continually asking the question. And it just, I guess, planted a seed. And uh, in 2018, the seed grew a little bit. And I spoke with Reese Homfrey, who's the head of sport here at the Advertiser in Adelaide, about whether he thought it would be a good idea. And, and secondly, I suck at him in a little bit. I said, would you be interested to co-write it for me? Um, because I knew given some of the challenges I had been through and if I was going to do a book, I needed to be honest and open. Um, I needed to trust the person I was going to sit down and have those conversations with and who would ultimately um, put those words onto paper. So um, once he came on board, we started to look into different people. By that stage, I guess a lot of uh, publishers thought I was past the point of um, interest, I guess, to publish a book um, and no one wanted to put it together. So I actually um, contacted Steve Waugh, who's a good friend of mine through our connections at the AOC from him being an athlete mentor at the Olympic Games and asked him if he had a contact that could at least, um, you know, look at our, our concept. And he put us in touch with Jeff Armstrong, who's a, uh, you know, has um, the publishing company of Stoke Hill Press and, and he jumped at the opportunity and, um, you know, the simple title of now came from Jeff um, attending one of my uh, conferences and listening to the stories and uh, and one of the stories in between by me going back and meeting my 11 year old self and understanding the person I am now. And he just said, that's the perfect book title. So that's how it came about. I, uh, and I imagine you mentioned Steve Waugh. I've been lucky enough to catch up with him a couple of times. Jeez, he would have been brutally honest too, whether he thought it was a good idea or not. He's that sort of guy, he's a straight shooter. So that must've given you a fair bit of, I guess, confidence to, I mean, go out and, and do it. 
Absolutely. And like you said, he's honest. So if anyone's going to tell me it's a good idea or not, it was going to be him. So when I approached him, I'm like, look, just tell me straight. Is it a good idea? Is there anyone you think would be interested in? And he just, you know, straight away sent back the contact details. He's like, get in touch with this person. It's a good idea. So um, I've been fortunate to have really great people like that, that I can um, contact and lean on at different times throughout my career and my transition away from sport as well. And, um, and, and, even though he's such an icon in Australian sport, he's a normal bloke. Mm. And, um, and that's what I really like about him and I think why we connected so well. In this book, you, you of course, talk about your, your life now and then the, the, the transitioning you, you, you from sport to, to the normal, inverted comma, uh, life. Uh, if you look back, what were the, the, the biggest challenges? Because you, you mentioned in previous interviews that you felt you were ready, but were you ready? You know, it's an interesting one, hey, like... You hear all the stories of athletes that struggle and why they struggle um, through transition away from sport. And I've done all of the right things, you know, the ACE coordinators, you know, looking at career after sport. Um, you know, the hardest one for me was I wanted a family and, and I'd put off having a family for my career so that by the time I came to retire and I'd lost my marriage and my, you know, my belief that that opportunity to have a family had gone with that, Um, that was also a double-edged sword to retiring. Um, I felt like I had done the work, I had the connections and I had a lot of job offers in front of me. But what I didn't realize was how I was going to feel when I got to that point. And I had to do a lot of work on me before I could take on any of those opportunities. So um, the time doesn't have a measure either in that regard. And every athlete or every person going through change um, has their own time frame on that so yeah and in, in actually a question i've got for you both for because you're both ex-athletes now uh you know when should you start preparing to for your next career because if i summarize all your life has been on a bike all your life has been about performance all your bike all your life has been about that resilience uh and how do you transpond this to the normal inverted comma humans how, when do you know you're ready for it. Well, well, I'll add, I'll add a question <laughs> to that for you, Anna, as well. And it's not a, it's not a question to sort of uh, draw any controversy out of it. But do you think, say, cycling or all sports, for that matter, should or can or sh yeah should do more to sort of look after the athletes as they're about to retire, or do you think it's a case of, uh, you know, every person is every individual is different, and they're going to find their own path? Yes, they need support. What, what do you think, though? Do you think there should be more support or do you think sometimes you've just got to let they, these people find their own way? Look, I think it, every, everyone is different um, and in which case, you know, that's why I didn't actually take on any of the offers uh, of the programs of support that were uh, available to me, both through Cycling Australia, the Australian Institute of Sport and the Australian Olympic Committee, basically because I didn't want to be a part of a program anymore. Now, It really, in some ways, you can class me um, as an institutionalized athlete. I did 22 years in the sport, 16 years at the elite senior level. So when I finally left the program, the last thing on my mind was joining another program. And so I guess in some ways what can be done is the op op options available to athletes for what support they can gain um, and not just one size fits all because everyone does respond so differently. Now, the reason why everyone responds so differently is because there's an element of loss and grief with this transition because you are 
losing not just a career, but you're losing contact with people. You're losing a place to go every single day. You're losing the opportunity to be around like-minded people. And for me, the hardest element was watching my sport carry on without me. And I understand um, sport is such a big machine and you constantly have to look forward, reassess, reanalyze, reprogram, get new athletes in so that, you know, the, the product bottom line, the budget bottom line can continue to move forward. Um, the sad part about that when the focus is always on the forward steps is you forget about the ones that step out to the side or towards the back and, um, that being said, Cycling Australia have always been in touch with me, but I just haven't wanted to return the favour. And they've always given me the respective distance that I've requested. It's, and to add to that, Anna, I mean, I've always thought, I'll tell you what I think now, I, I think I agree with you mostly. It's like you can lead a donkey down to the dam, but you can't force it to drink. And, 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 and I sort of found, I mean, I'm a completely different era, but, and, I'm, and I was never an academic. So I feel like, and you see it now with a lot of athletes like yourself, but as you say yourself, you were so institutionalized, so many years in that structure. Um, yeah, it's, I mean, do you look now at some athletes who even retired while you were competing and athletes that you're seeing coming through now, so like Carly McCulloch, who, who you had a, a fantastic sort of career with or she did with you and she's continuing on now. Do you see yourself potentially or are you already sort of mentoring or speaking with Carly on a regular basis because she's potentially going into her last Olympics? Maybe, maybe not, but she's certainly in the second half of her career, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. And um, like you said, I've had a great history with Carly um, winning Olympic medals, world championship titles. Um, the one thing I know with Carly is she's a little bit similar to me <laughs> in the sense of... Um, so you yeah, know her well. I know her well, yeah. She's very driven. She's very, very meticulous. Um, and also she has a very good um, network of support around her um, that is outside of cycling, um, you know, her family, her friends, her contacts, particularly in New South Wales. Um, I send her a message every now and then um, just to keep in touch. But again, I guess through some of the lessons that I have learned, this is not in context to Carly, but in general with athletes that I engage with, um, particularly in the instance with um, Gary and his battle with motor neurone disease. As I watched him deteriorate, I learned a lot of lessons that he was prepared to share both through his blog and through communication with me. And one of the biggest ones was that um, he, he wished he listened more. And for a coach of his calibre uh, and you know, for him to have coached for 27 years and to have lost his voice to realise that he could have listened better was pretty profound and so a lot of the time I won't engage I'll, I'll wait for people to firstly come to me and secondly if they come to me I'll let them talk first because sometimes we talk at people as opposed to talking to them or listening to them and when you give people the opportunity to talk first um, often the voices in the head sound different when they come out the mouth and they can start to put pieces together themselves and eventually they'll come to a stop point and that stop point will indicate either they've recognised what the problem is or they've got a question to help them solve it. And that's where I like to step in. And, and I don't just work with, you know, cycling athletes. I, I work with um, different athletes, both in the cycling world, but also in different sports. You know, I've got a, a young Canadian girl called Lauren Ganess who I, I work with, as well as um, Sam Grayson, who's in the um, American college basketball system. 
you know, all these people I've just met randomly either crossing paths with or at speaking circuits or at different times who I've just given them my details. And I said, look, I'm open if you ever want to make contact. Is there a, a relationship between, you know, you, you became a parent, your mother, uh, relationship between becoming a mother and leaving the sport, you know, and I'm just making my point. There is this feeling when you leave the hospital, you've got the pram, baby in the pram, and then you've done all the preps you want. You're ready for the childbirth, but you're not ready for the next step, no matter what you think. Uh, it, it, can we see a correlation in, the, in this? Absolutely. There is no textbook. Um, and that's the, what I, you know, referring back to my point that I really struggled to re-engage with a program. <laughs> um, if I had have had that ability to have one-on-one -on -one individualization, I probably would have responded a little bit more. Um, but at the same time, I'm also really stubborn. I like to be able to um, stumble along and find my own way, but I've also swallowed my pride enough to realise when I need to ask for help. And that it was also a really hard lesson to learn with you know, adult pride and ego in the way as well, is simply that we don't always have the answers and we need the help of other people to be able to cope through circumstances, um, be it big or small, um, just by our response to them. Anna, um, your partner, Nick Fleischer, he's the current uh, national sprint coach. Did you realise when you got together and as you're getting into retirement, you didn't want to talk about cycling that you can't avoid it at the dinner table, surely? I, mean, <laughs> I would imagine he's going to pick your brains at some point in his role. <laughs> How's that? In all seriousness, though, because it's true, though, my wife has worked in cycling since we've known each other, and it does become that topic of conversation. So how are you guys handling that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, in, in a sad way, it was actually Gary's funeral that reconnected me both with my sport and the people within it. And it was there that Nick was one of the people I reconnected with. And we spent a few months just as friends, you know, he was fantastic in support, just getting me out the house for starters um, and engaging in, in communication. And then um, I realised there's a whole other person behind the professional that I engaged with um, when I was a part of the Cycling Australia team. And that was one of the hardest things around whether we got into a relationship or not was, was that cycling link. And I simply said to him, I don't, I'm not talking cycling. There's no chat of cycling at all in my house, in your house, or when we're in each other's company to the point where at one stage I, I went to an after um, work drinks for Cycling Australia staff and Simon Jones started to engage in a conversation with me and I just had this blank look on my face. He goes, I'm sure Nick and you would have discussed this. I said, no, we don't actually talk shop. And he goes, he sort of laughed. He's like, oh, yeah, sure. I'm sure you don't talk shop. I'm like, we don't talk shop, Simon. He's like, oh. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you could have at least gone out with a, a, a road coach or something. You had to pick an actual sprint-specific coach like Cheapers. <laughs> I know. Well, to his credit, he's a sports science background um, from a lot of different sports. But uh, as time has gone on, I, I have softened on that stance and we do start to engage in conversation. Mainly, you know, he picks my brain around the athlete perspective, um, which... I think I've been able to help in some regard, but also, you know, it also reaffirms for both of us. One, I'm glad I'm not an athlete anymore. And two, so is he. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, on, on this point, you know, with everything that has happened with uh, COVID-19, coronavirus and, and this crazy year of 2020, uh, how do you think you would have reacted and how are the athletes thinking 
right now of not being able to go to Tokyo this year. You know, this whole postponing. We've been debating this with Maka over the last few podcasts, of course, and other athletes. But you, as a, as a as an Olympian, multiple time Olympian, how, do, how what would be in their mind today? Well, firstly, I'll give you the example from my mind. That's a good start. That's a good start. <laughs> happened in London 2012. I would have been pissed but I would have been all right. I would have been like, okay, no problem. I'm at the top of my game. I'm confident in my team and the, the plan that we have, uh, we'll just uh, have the discussions, reset the plan and go after a new plan. Had this have happened during the preparation for the Rio Olympics in 2016, I probably wouldn't have got there. Um, and, and we've seen some athletes in the international scene already. Um, the biggest one that I'm aware of, Eddie Dawkins from New Zealand, um, call time on his career as a result of not being able to commit another 12 months. Like it may not seem like a lot to, to people outside of the sporting environment, but mentally, physically and emotionally to continue to wring um, the best out of yourself for another 12 months can be too much for some athletes. So I think you're going to see um, two sides to this one, the older generation of athletes who are going to really struggle, um, particularly those staring down, physical injury and the potential of retirement. And the other side, you're going to see the younger generation who are a bit more of a, a bull at a gate who just be like, I don't really care. Whatever the, whenever the games are on, I'll be there. I'll represent Australia type thing. And just um, changing tones slightly, but sticking to the, to the track theme. And I am really interested in your thoughts on this. Um, track cycling, where's it at? Because I love track cycling, as you would know, with the, when we used to run the revolution here in Australia, and that was successful, but it's really waned here in this country. And I, I mean, I blame a number of reasons. I don't think you can pinpoint one person, but what do we need to do to make track cycling super popular to get the crowds there? And I guess give all of these great track cyclists that we have, I mean, we grow them on trees here to make them household names. What do we need to do, do you think? What does the sport need to do? Uh, well, I think there are a couple of things here that we can do, but simply we need to get people in the stands. That's the first start. We need to bring people in to watch the sport. It's a great sport. And we know we have the following, given how many people want to be there at the Olympic Games, the Commonwealth Games and the World Championships. We also know we have the following, given the grassroots and involvement at recreational level of cycling here in, the, in this country, but aren't actually members of Cycling Australia. You don't have to go far from your home to see how many people are on a push bike, not just at the moment, but in general. Um, and so I think that's the biggest thing. I think to first to get people in the stands, don't charge money. Give the tickets away for free. Get people in the stands, get them hooked on the sport or that we love, show them why we love it. And then as we start to get people in the stands, maybe increase it to a gold coin donation, like a one or $2 entry, eventually uh, over a few years, maybe charge five or 10 bucks. Um, people especially love cycling are family orientated and money is a really hard thing for people to um, part with so that would be the first suggestion that I would throw in um, in regards to that and then secondly I think supporting the athletes to be able to help grow their profile and engage with profile um, and that was something that I learned from my own manager Francine not from anyone um, within Cycling Australia and um, and we became very separate to Cycling Australia in that regard because it was Francine who was driving my profile and connection to corporate Australia. That's very interesting because uh, it's is it done anywhere else in the world? 
Or is there a place in the world, I don't know, the US or any other place where we can draw experience this from, like where being more of a showcase of, of, of the sport? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think Great Britain would be a good place to start. And also the European countries, given um, the, the success of the six-day um, competitions throughout Europe, I mean, That it's it's a festival. I mean, the first time I rode at an outdoor track in Germany, they had bands, they had music, they had all sorts of. I thought honestly, it wasn't a cycling event. It was just unbelievable from an athlete's perspective to be there. I was excited for the atmosphere that was created. People just waltzed in like they weren't even paying at the gate. They just wanted to create the atmosphere first. And I think that's perhaps a little bit of what we're missing here in Australia. So, yeah, I think Europe and the UK are probably good models to look at for that. Actually, and I'm going to go a little bit further now to this because you're a good country girl. And as you would know, right across Australia, we've got all of these outdoor velodromes that are sitting there lying dormant. I've got this, believe it or not, Anna, I actually have a fetish with velodromes, outdoor <laughs> velodromes, that is. I don't know why. I love them. I love going to them. And it got them. really cranky one day because I filmed a 20-second video on my electric bike on the Othorn velodrome. He got on the blower straight away with me. Oh, going, you can't do this. Anna you will agree with me on that one. No electric bike. <laughs> it was fun. Mate. It was fun. But, I'm but, sorry, Becca, I have an electric bike. <laughs> They're the best in the world. Anyway, that wasn't your question. <laughs> They are good. But I would like, I would love to think that we can take track cycling back to the outdoor velodromes. I don't mean permanently. Have the Olympics world champs on that standard indoor, you know, sort of uh, similar track that, that they race on each four years and every year at world champs and so on. But I think the carnival atmosphere for outdoor velodromes would be fantastic. And I just think... It's like, say, take it, it's almost like, say, a code of football playing in a community ground. Um, I'm not saying that's what they should do as well, but I just think maybe that's a good starting point for track cycling. Absolutely. Um, one of my fondest memories of, of when I got involved in this sport was the carnivals growing up in Queensland. Um, I remember, you know, at the um, halftime break, we had the go-kart club come in and race around the velodrome, there were sparks yeah, flying and perfect. everything. You know, just, just engagement with the community outside of cycling as well was really good. Um, what I will say from an elite perspective, where that becomes difficult is risk versus reward. Um, and when we're athletes contracted to Cycling Australia, um, when there's a risk of injury, when the focus is World Cups, World Championships, Commonwealth Games and Olympic Games, the tendency is to step back from that because um, you don't want to get injured. If you get injured, you lose your ability to win those medals to bring in the funding in the first place. Um, so the timing of those carnivals is really critical to get the engagement from the elite level um, of athletes that we have available to go back and, and bring an influx of um, interest into those regional areas. Well, listen, you've got, a, you've got the inside run here. So talk to your partner. Get him, on, get him on side, and then we'll start. You know, I've got a, you know, I've got a grand plan here. And you, you've got your name on a, you've got your name on the velodrome as well, I believe as well. Yeah, I know. I, I don't like to drop, you know, to do the old uh, name drop or anything like that. But um, yeah, no, it's it's hard. It's um, I think Cycling Australia have been doing a really good job with um, getting a, you know, old cycling or one cycling together. I think that would be a really good step. 
in the process. Um, unfortunately, process takes time and this isn't going to be fixed quickly. In your book, you talk a lot about uh, that 11-year-old girl you know, as, as really a, a starting point for you. As a mother today, uh, do you reflect? I know your, your daughter is not 11 yet, but uh, do you reflect already? Do you envisage how you will be as a mum of a future 11-year-old child? Yeah, I look at my daughter, Evelyn, who's um, only just turned three months old, and I, I just am in love with her innocence. Um, you know, uh, she's never seen a, a drink bottle before, and the other day she kind of locked her gaze on it, and I was just sit found myself sitting on the couch talking to her about what a drink bottle is, you know. Um, so I really enjoy the innocence and the basic foundation of learning that I can offer her at the moment. Um, but I guess the perspective that I hope that I'll be able to offer her when she's a little bit older through my experiences um, will be impactful. Uh, what I've learned is as an adult, we're really quick to judge and criticize um, and, and not offer ourselves a break uh, very often um, with our performances, our delivery, our engagement um, in what we do. And in the transition away from sport, that was a really big problem for me because I just, I couldn't be kind to myself. And it was uh, Rita Princey Hubbard, my uh, psychologist, clinical psychologist who I work with, um, both uh, at the latter end of my career and through transition that she kind of got me in my head to go back and knock on my childhood home and see my 11-year-old self answer. And she asked, you know, would you talk to yourself in the same way as a child as you would as an adult? And when in my head I met myself as an 11-year-old kid, I just broke emotionally. And all I could do was get down on my knees and give her a hug and say thank you because she was about to go through everything that I had been through. And she wouldn't give up. And I know she wouldn't give up because I'm here today. Um, and ultimately, I've become the, the woman I am now. And that's where the title of the book really um, came from, Simply Now, and a perspective look back on some of the challenges and the highs that I've had in my career. Um, and I guess the, the nutshell out of that is we need to just be kinder to ourselves. You know, how we talk to children sometimes should be how we talk to ourselves as adult and each other, rather than looking in the mirror and going, oh, you're a bloody idiot. What did you do that for type thing? Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a very emotionally powerful experience that I went through for that. Hey, uh, you talk about being a bit kinder and whatever. I'm, I'm about to throw Chris off under the bus here because... He always, we, we have a ratio in every podcast. He has to throw me once under the bus. We're allowed to do it to each other. <laughs> Just before you came on and joined the, the meeting, Anna, he, we were talking about you and uh, he said, gee, you know, the few times I've interviewed her before at bike races, she's as cold as ice. I said, no, no, mate, don't worry. She's lovely. She's, she's a beautiful lady. I said, don't worry about it. There you go. I'm done. Yeah. But you were quite cool. Yeah, but probably focused would be the word. Yeah. I mean, it's, you must. I know, I know we've sort of talked about the psychology of that a lot, but just touch on that just a little bit for us because you would look back now at yourself and go, geez, I was so bang, narrow, you know, tunnel vision and, you know, everything was focused on this and that. And, do you, ever look, do you look back at it all and say, I wouldn't change a single thing? Or do you say, maybe I would tweak a few little things here and there? I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Hindsight is a wonderful thing. Um, and this is where being kind to myself is really important because I've learnt skills and abilities now that I did not have then. 
And I could only cope with the situations as best I could with what I had at the time. And the competitive environment of the velodrome, it's brutal. You know, you have to have a level of intimidation, aggression, your ability to be able to flick that switch and want to crush an uh, opponent. It's not just nicely going out to compete. You want to crush them, you know, because that psychological edge that can come back to your advantage next time you meet that opponent is really, really important. Now, throw into that mix interviews with media in between competitions or after events, and the strategy of, of my mind starts to tick. You know, what information do I want to give? Um, firstly, and secondly, have they caught me at a good time? Like, am I in a mood? Am, have I um, been able to give myself some distance from what's just happened to be able to engage in an articulate verbal way? Um, and so because I'm an emotional character as well, uh, I've got to be really careful about that. But I'm also personally quite an introverted person and I've learned to be extroverted, to be able to cope with the sporting environment, with media interests, with questions as well. Um, but at different times throughout my career, you know, at the start, I was really young, naive, green, eager, happy. Yeah, you know what, you know, bring, bring it at me. As success built over a long period of time, so too did the pressure and expectation of what or who Anamias was. And, and I started to really struggle with the Anna that was at the velodrome and the Anna that was at home um, and being able to flick that switch. And the only way that I could cope a lot of the time was to keep that switch on um, in that environment. So Christoph, yeah, I would have been icy. Yeah, I would have been, <laughs> I would have been very calculated and analytical with what I would have given you. And oh, if you put me at a bad time, I probably wouldn't want to talk to you. <laughs> and you know what? You know what? You know what? I probably was also learning my skills because I was probably new in all this. Uh, so I grew along this. <laughs> <laughs> now, Anna, I've got a couple of uh, just to lighten the mood a little bit. We'll get away from the psychology to a degree of this sport. I, I know uh, in the past, and I, I was watching something uh, or listening to you recently. Uh, just the last couple of days, um, based around the book and, and everything that you did in your career. What's the maximum for all our viewers and listeners um, who, who fancy themselves in the gym? What's your record in the leg press? Single leg press, so one leg, 250 kilograms. There you go, Crystal. That's about, that's about my weight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there you go. So, and uh, do, you, do you have any, do you, do you ever think, do you want to get back into the gym at no. all just for general fitness or no? no? You probably don't want to see any more inside a gym. <laughs> I've got the dumbbells here at home and the, the thing with ego and being able to lift weights like that is when you pick up like a five kilo dumbbell now I'm four years into retirement and you struggle. Um, those days of being able to lift weights like I used to come back to haunt you. Yeah, welcome, welcome to my world. <laughs> <laughs> welcome to my life. <laughs> <laughs> and, and look, the other thing uh, I saw, well, there's been a lot of um, great responses to your book online on, and especially on Twitter. And I was reading through some of the great comments from current athletes as well and uh, sports journalists and a gentleman, I don't know this gentleman, but uh, John Dunlop, he's a, I think he's a sport, he's in sports management and he said, Anna Mears, the book now, one of the greatest athletes, any sport, any code, yada, yada, yada. He said her only flaw is her football team. <laughs> so... As, as, a, as a proud Victorian and someone who loves my AFL, I'm presuming he's talking about AFL. Come on, you've got to tell me. Port Adelaide, all the way. Adelaide. Port Adelaide. Port, Port Adelaide. So, you, so that doesn't sit well with me because <laughs> I, think, I think you're a little bit of a fraud because you're a country Queensland girl originally. 
you should be going for a Queensland team at the very least. What's oh Fitzroy, uh, Fitzroy at least. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so funny. See, the thing is, when I moved to Adelaide, I had no idea what AFL was. I was a, a league girl, so when I came here and people asked me about my football team, I'd be like, "Yeah, Cowboys," and they're like, "Who?" I'm like, "Cowboys." Um, so at that time, the Brisbane Lions were the only Queensland team in the league, so I did follow them, uh, but. Through Tammy Ebert and the Ebert family who worked with the cycling team, I met the Port Adelaide Football Club, the players, the staff. And like anything, once you meet someone, you start to follow them. And they were so good in supporting my career and you know, just being generally interested in me as a person. It was hard not to, to return that to the club. And um, I, I like community. I like um, supporting and helping people. I'm involved with a number of charities and it just, it just seemed to fit. The gloves seemed to fit. So ever since then, I've, I've loved the Port Adelaide Football Club. Um, I also love the colours. Black's pretty slimming. Um, so <laughs> You say this to us. We're both wearing black T-shirt. Thank you. <laughs> you look great, guys. Subtle hint. Subtle hint. <laughs> uh, good stuff. All right, I'll let you off the hook, but only just, only just. I've got uh, probably one last question. Uh, it's more around, uh, you know, have you been able to talk about all this with your previous competitors, you know, the Pebbletons and and so on is it something that you've slowly been able to chat with them about the post life after cycling yeah well I, I got the chance to talk to Victoria at length on a number of occasions um, given that she worked for BBC5 radio for the last um, four years of my career after she retired um, so it, they were interesting chats and great to be able to gain some perspective from from her um, but recently we had uh, Christina Vogel here in Adelaide um, as a legend of the Santos Tour Down Under. And I was for the first time able to engage with her off the track. We've never um, been in each other's company um, really? on a casual basis. No. Wow. And wow. Uh, funnily enough, I said to her, you know, you were the one person I loved racing because you were so tough. You were so brutal. You were really crafty. And then I said, you're also, for the same reasons, the one person I hated racing. And we started laughing because she was of the same opinion, you know. And then I went to go on to say, you know, and you always qualified shit. And we met early in the, in the sprint matchup rounds and I hated that. She goes, yeah, I know. I don't know why. I always raced better than I qualified. I said, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she's a real star, isn't she, Anna? Yeah. Uh, like I got to speak with her, obviously, at TDU as well. And what she's gone through is tragic, but wow. She seems just like such a strong person. A remarkable human being. And she has a book coming out next year and that will be fascinating mm. um, to read as well because she is someone who's been going through, um, you know, trauma, significant trauma in the public eye. Um, so how she handles that will be one that I'm interested to, to learn about as well. Absolutely. Uh, Anna Mears, it was a pleasure to have you in, a, in the podcast. Uh, thank was you. I thank nicer you. this time, Christophe? You were lo a lot, a lot, a lot less cold. Let's put it this way. <laughs> Once you hang up, Anna, I'll get the real answer off it and then I'll call you back. I'll st yeah, I stopped recording before. <laughs> now, all good. Thank you for your time, Anna. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, guys. Thank you. So this was the uh, Zwift Cycling Central podcast. So remember that you can uh, download, stream or subscribe to our podcast on our website, sbs.com.au slash central or log a ride with our friend at Zwift. Until next time, is bye for now. Before we go, a quick shout out to Zwift, the app that turns indoor training into a game. Getting started on Zwift is easy. You just need your bike, a trainer and your PC, Mac or Apple device. Zwift offers training plans, interval workouts and a global community. 
get strong and get motivated with every ride. Give people a ride on and you're sure to get one back as together you enjoy the massive benefits of social indoor training. Go to Zwift.com today and start your free trial.